Psalms 15, verse number 1. I'll read this verse. We'll join in together on the second one. Verse number 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose hands a vile person is contemned. But he honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. Now, I know you're probably sitting there, we've read that, and you're probably saying, huh? What? what in the world does all that have to do with us? But it has a whole lot to do with us, and I hope you'll listen intently here for just a few minutes tonight. Let's pray. Father, do bless your word tonight. God, I pray you'd use these verses to maybe help us, convict us in some areas that we need to be convicted in. And Lord, may we leave here with a greater, better determination to serve you and uh, to watch these things that are talk about, talked about in this text. And please help me as I try to preach tonight. God, clear out my mind and clear off our minds. I know a lot's happened Monday and Tuesday and probably be a lot happening the rest of this week. But may we just for just a moment just maybe clear everything out and listen to the Word of God. And may your Word speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in our recent Wednesday evening services, then you will recall that we are currently making our way through the Old Testament book of Psalms in a series of sermons that I've entitled Preaching Through the Psalms. Tonight brings us all the way up to Psalms chapter 15. And once again, we understand from the superscription mentioned right under Psalms 15 that this is a Psalm of David. He is the author of these words. Of course, we know the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, but David, uh, David was the human author that wrote these words. Uh, so far, out of the 15 psalms that we have been through or will be through at the close of the service this evening, uh, David has been the author of 13 of these psalms. The only two that he hasn't written thus far are Psalms chapter 1 and Psalms chapter number 2. So those are the ones he hasn't written. The other 13 he has written. And most people feel that Psalms 15, the one that we're in tonight, was written against the backdrop of the ark of God being brought back in to the city of Jerusalem. Now, of course, those of us that are familiar with the Old Testament, our Bible, know that the ark of God was the most important piece the most important article of furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle. The ark, more so than any other piece of furniture in that Old Testament tabernacle, represented the presence and the power of God. It was nothing more than just a box made out of a kale wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. It was about four feet, maybe a little longer than four feet, about two and a half feet wide and two and a half feet high. It was made out of wood, as I said, that was overlaid with pure gold. And I think maybe there is a picture, uh, a rendition of what the ark of God looked like that we're speaking about here this evening. Well, we know from the history of the Old Testament that that ark was actually stolen uh, back during the days of Eli. 
Eli was the high priest or the priest over the land of Israel. And back during those days, the ark of God was stolen by the Philistines. There came a war between Israel and the Philistines. And the nation of Israel grabbed the ark like it was a, a, a rabbit's foot, a four-leaf clover, thinking that it would ensure them of the victory only to find out that once the victory, the battle was over, the dust had settled and the smoke had cleared, not only had the nation of Israel been soundly defeated by the Philistines, but the ark of God had been stolen by the Philistines as well. They took that ark and placed it in the house of their god. His name was Dagon. He was a fish god. He had the body of a fish, but he had hands like a man. And they set that ark in there before that God as if he had given them the victory over the only God, the God of heaven. And of course, we know how that that ark became a hot potato, so to speak, for the Philistines. They got sick. Their ark, their, their God was destroyed. Their land was cursed because God never intended for the Philistines to have the ark. They finally made up their mind. We got to get rid of this thing before we all die. So the Word of God said that they took that ark and they slipped it up on the back of a brand new cart that was pulled by two milk cows. And they gave them old cows a switch and they took off back toward the land of Israel. And when it came back into the land of Israel for many years, it stayed in the house of a boy, a man by the name of Obed-Edom. Well, when David became king, he desired to bring the ark back to where it rightfully belonged. However, we know that David tried to do a right thing, but he tried to do a right thing in a wrong way. He copied the same thing the Philistines have done. He got a cart, got some milk cows, slid the thing up on the back of a cart. First thing you know, one of his good men by the name of Uzzah has lost his life because David is using Philistine methods to try to do the work of God. Ladies and gentlemen, God never has blessed Philistine methods when we try to do his work uh, by using the ways of the world. Can I have an amen? He lost one of his good men by the name of Uzzah. Later on, David did the right thing in a right way. He did like God intended for him to have. If you'll go back to that picture, guys, we can put that picture back up. If you'll notice there, God intended those staves, those long rods that was placed in that ark. God intended for that ark to be transported by a, a group of people known as the, uh, the Kohathites. They were the one who had the responsibility to bear the ark. When it came time to move, they would go in that Old Testament tabernacle and they would take the veil down and they would wrap that veil around that ark and then those Kohathites would slip those, those staves through those, those holes there and then they would pick it up and they would bear it uh, to the next place. When the Shekinah glory of God sat down, they would once again pitch tent there again. Well, David then used the right methods and the ark of God was successfully brought back to the city of Jerusalem. Oh, it was a great day when the ark came back in to, to the rightful place, the place that David had pitched for it. In fact, we read this in 2 Samuel 6.15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. It was a joyous occasion when the ark came back into the land of Israel. That's the words. David then penned these words down in Psalms 15, expressing the desires of his heart, the delight of his heart 
when the ark of God came back into the city of Jerusalem. Now, as we look at these words tonight, i got to tell you one thing before we delve into this text, and that's this. If you were to go back into Psalms chapter 14, you will find out that there are two groups of people that are mentioned in Psalms 14. Go back, if you will, look at verse number 3. The Bible talks about it, verse number, no, I'm sorry, verse number 4. The Bible talks about the workers of iniquity. And then if you'll jump down to verse number 5, we have a second group that is mentioned, and they are called the generation of the righteous. Now, in our day, we say it like this. There's only two groups of people on the earth today, the saints and the ain'ts. In Bible days, they said there's two groups of people in the world, and that is the workers of iniquity and the generation of the righteous. Now, I want to tell you as we approach Psalms 15 tonight, this text is not written for the workers of iniquity. This text was written for the generation of the righteous. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this right here. Psalms 15 is not a prescription for being saved. It is a description of how saved people ought to be living. Can I have an amen? Yeah, this, this isn't telling us how to be saved. I mean, you can do all the things in Psalms 15 or do your best to do these things, and you're still not going to go to heaven if you don't have Jesus in your heart. Can I have an amen? The, the most important thing, the only way to get to heaven is through and by a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you can do the best you can. You can turn over new leaves. You can uh, promise to be better. You can, uh, you can uh, have a new beginning in your life. You can do all of that, but if you don't have Jesus, friend, you're not going to go to heaven. You're still a worker of iniquity. This isn't written to the workers of iniquity. This is written to the generation of the righteous. So this psalm isn't telling lost people what they must do to be saved. This psalm is telling saved people what they must do to enter the presence of God. Are we clear on that? Have you got me, Bubba? Are y'all with me on that? So don't go out soul winning next week and say, all right, what? somebody said, well, what I, I've been wanting to get saved. How do I get saved? Well, let's go over to Psalms 15 here and let me tell you how. No, sir, this is not about that. This is telling us those of us that are already saved, how you and I can draw into the presence of God. Amen and amen. So let's get started. Now look at Psalms 15. Notice, if you will, verse number one. And let me just say, number one, look at this psalm as the psalmist is seeking God's presence. He is seeking God's presence. Now look at verse one. Lord, a couple of questions. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, of course, among the many things we could take away from verse number one, I think the main thing is this. The writer, the psalmist, David, is seeking and wanting to be near the presence of God. He is asking God, what have I got to do to enter the tabernacle? Hey, what have I got to do to dwell in thy holy hill? Now, David was a man on two different occasions, three different occasions in the Bible that is called a man after God's own heart. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, the Bible said, David, the son of Jesse. And then it goes on to say, God said of David, he is a man after mine own heart. David desired what God desired. Can I say it like this? I know he struggled. I know he had his, I know he had his bad moments. I know he did things that were wrong. But the truth of the matter is, David was a man who wanted God. 
But he realized that not just anybody could go into God's presence. Not just anyone can walk in whenever they choose to do so, walk into the presence of God. Now, you and I know that's true in the Old Testament as well. When God dwelt in the tabernacle and later on in the more permanent structure of the temple, there were all kind of barriers that kept man from walking into the presence of God. I mean, if you were a common person from the land of Israel, as far as you could go in the tabernacle was the brazen altar. You could bring your altar, give it to the priest, stand there at the brazen altar, but you could go no further. You couldn't go to the laver. You couldn't go to the holy place. You couldn't go to the holiest of all. Those things stood there as I guess God's keep out sign, no trespassing sign. God just wouldn't allow anybody into his presence. Of course, when that priest took that offering and then offered it up as sacrifice from the brazen altar, he would stop off there at the labor. He would get cleaned up. Then he could walk into the holy place. He could eat of the showbread. He could walk by the light. He could smell the incense. But even that priest couldn't walk back into the presence of God. He was kept out by a veil that was about as thick as a man's hand that kept him out of the presence of God. The only priest, and that only one time a year, that could go back there and walk in the presence of God was the high priest. And on the Day of Atonement, otherwise, everybody else had to keep out, had to stay away from the presence of God. But we know all that changed when Jesus died on Calvary. Can I have an amen? When Jesus died on Calvary, one of the miracles that took place that day, not only did the sun go black and the rocks rent, not only was there a resurrection, and many that had died got up and walked around. But one of the marvelous things that happened that day at Calvary was the veil that hung in that temple that said for centuries to mankind, stay out, keep away, no trespassing. That old veil was rent from the top to the bottom. And the Bible said when that veil was rent that God was now saying to humanity, come on in, let's fellowship together. Because of the finished work of the Son of God on Calvary, Now we can walk into the presence of God. Amen and amen. But not just anybody can walk into the presence of God. You know, one of the things I believe in our day that we ought to really desire is to get into God's presence. One of the things that I think that there is such a lack of in my life, I don't know about you, but a real desire to get into the presence of God. There ought to be something on the inside of every one of us that cries out, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Lord, who shall dwell in thy holy hill? We should all want to uh, desire to be near to him, to live our life as possibly as close as we possibly can. I'm afraid in our day we're more interested in seeing how far away we can stay from God and yet escape the chastening hand of God. We want to hover around the perimeter of Christianity. We don't want to stick out like a a sore thumb. We don't want people to laugh at us or make fun of us or think that we're old-fashioned and that we're out of touch. So we hover on the perimeter of the Christian life just close enough uh, that we don't get chastened by God when there ought to be a reality to live our lives, to position ourselves as close as we possibly can to the Lord. Boy, that's a good question, isn't it? Verse 1, Lord, who... Lord, who can get in there? Lord, who can dwell in thy holy hill? God, how can I be close to you? How can I have the presence of God upon my life? That ought to be a question that we're all interested in. So number one, in verse one, we see the psalmist seeking 
God's presence. Now move with me to verse 2, and here's where it gets good now. So beginning in verse number 2, we find out what God requires for His people to draw into His presence. As I said a moment ago, not anybody can walk into God's presence. But now look at me. Not just anybody can walk into God's presence. You see, God invites everybody to come. But there is those people who draw near to God. There, there are some conditions, some qualifications that must be met in our lives before we can really have the presence of God on our life, before we can dwell uh, in that holy hill, before we can abide in that tabernacle, before we can be close to God, there's some things we're going to have to take care of. So join me now in verse number 2 and look at these things that we're told that must be present in the life of a person who draws into the presence of God. First of all, look at verse number 2. Consider this person's walk. Look at verse 2. He, the, the answer to the question of verse number 1. All right, here's the answer. He that walketh uprightly. So in other words, that tells me that if I'm going to get into the presence of God and have the presence of God on my life, I'm going to have to walk uprightly. Now I'm told, just so we're all on the same page, that that word uprightly was actually a priestly word. It was used by Old Testament priests. And it referred to the sacrifice that was brought to the, 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 the priest. Here comes this, this man. He's went to his flocks. And he's picked out the best that he has in his flocks. And he brings that, that, that offering and he presents it to the priest. And before the priest will kill the altar, uh, the, uh, the offering on the altar, before the, before the priest will accept the offering, he'll get down and he'll take his hand and he'll move it over the entire body of that sacrifice. He's looking for blemishes. He's looking for flaws because only perfect sacrifices can be presented and accepted by God. And when he'd run his hand over that, there were no blemishes. He would open its mouth. He would check the mouth out. He would look at the hoofs of the animal that was being presented or whatever. And when it was found to be without blemish, it was said to be an upright sacrifice. That is, it was without blemish. Now, the person that draws in the presence of God is a person who is without blemish. Now, let me say this. Look at me just so we're all on the same page. I'm not talking about without sin. I'm talking about without blemish. I'm talking about living our best to live above reproach. When I say without blemish, I, I, I don't mean one that is sinless, but I do mean one that sins less. Can I have an amen? There ain't a one of us in here that's sinless. But we all ought to so live our lives that we sin less. And that's what it's talking about. It's just talking about a man who's made up his mind or a lady that's made up his mind, her mind that they're going to do what's right and they're going to, as best that they possibly can, they're going to live in this world and they're going to live above the reproach of the world. Or, and when I slip my New Testament glasses on, I come across this verse. A person who keeps himself, say it with me, unspotted from the world. We live in a dirty world, do we not? Now you know when God saved us, God dressed us in the white rags, uh, the white robes of his righteousness. And I'll tell you something about white. You don't want to wear it in a dirty factory. You don't, want to, you don't want to wear it where there's a lot of grease and grime and dirt out. If you do, you better be careful because you don't want to, you don't want to stain that 
white shirt or uh, that white dress or whatever. You don't want to stain that with the grease and the grime and the dirt of the world. You have to maneuver very carefully uh, through that factory so as you don't get stains and blots and blemishes upon that white garment. And ladies and gentlemen, as you and I maneuver through this world, it's a dirty old world. Brother Allen sang about it a moment ago. There's a lot of pitfalls, a lot of, a lot of t temptations in this world. We don't, want to, we don't want to dirty up our white robes of righteousness and we need to do our best to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. If we're going to draw into God's presence, we're going to have to deal with some things in our walk. Notice number two, we're going to have to deal, some, we're going to have to deal with some things. Uh, not only, by the way, I wrote this in my notes. Look at verse number four. We're going to have to be careful the kind of people we hang around with. Look at verse number four. The Bible said, in whose eyes, I'm sorry, whose eyes a vile person is contemned. That is, the person that's going to draw into God's presence is very careful with the company that he keeps. Now, I'm not telling you tonight, I, we're, we're no better than anybody else. The only thing that's better than me, I don't know if you've noticed this or not. I notice this when I go to the hospital every morning, but I, I don't never go through Silas Creek. I, I like to drive. 75 and a 65 and get to the hospital as quick as I can. Y'all pray for me. I'm working on my walk now. But uh, under the bridge, right before you get on business 40, I don't know if you've noticed, all those people that live up there under that bridge, there are tents, there's, uh, there are uh, those covers, it's all kind of trash. Those people live up under that bridge. And I want to tell you something, I am no better than those people that live up under that bridge. But can I tell you this? The only difference between me and them is that Jesus saved my soul. I'm not saying that we're to lift ourselves up, elevate ourselves above anybody, but I am saying this. We better be careful of the associations that we have in this world because more so than there is a tendency for us to pull them up, it's a lot easier for us to be pulled down to their level. Can I have an amen? We better be careful who we make our heroes in this day. Look again at verse number four. This is good advice, godly counsel, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned. So the man, the man that's walking upright, that can get into the presence of God, is a person who looks at somebody who's living a wicked life, and they look at them saying, thank God that's not me. I don't want to be like that. Can I have an amen? Uh, the only reason you and I should be friends with lost people is with a redemptive purpose in mind. We ought to befriend lost people, but our ultimate goal, our hidden agenda, ought to be able to get them people to Jesus. Can I have an amen? I don't want to run around, don't be mad at me, but I, I can't be best friends with a bunch of drunks. I can't be best friends with a bunch of people that smoke grass. You know why? I'm in light, they're in darkness, there's a rub there. I'm not better than them, but for the grace of God, that could be me. But if I do make a friend out of them, I do so with a hidden agenda in mind. I'm going to try to get that person saved. Can I have an amen? And then he went on to say this in verse number four. He said this, but he, he honoreth them that fear the Lord. They got the right kind of heroes. Their heroes are not the rock music crowd. It's not the, uh, the ungodly crowd. That's not who, our, our heroes are not supposed to be that crowd. 
Our heroes are them that fear the Lord, that live right, that honor God, that serve God. Hey, I'll tell you, if you want a hero, find some old white-haired saint of God in this room that's been in the race for 40, 50 years and still plugging away for God. Let that be your hero. Not the rock music crowd, not the ungodly, not the Hollywood actresses. It's, it's amazing to me uh, just reading on the, the news feed how many of those actors and actresses, and some of them have surprised me that have come out that are upset about the Supreme Court's ruling on abortion. It is unbelievable, the world. And, and we make heroes out of that crowd. Are you kidding me? Our heroes ought to be the crowd that loves our Savior and fears and walks with our Lord. Amen and amen. His walk, his walk. Then look at this. Not only are we told, if we're going to get into God's presence, the person with his walk, but notice the person in his work. Look again at verse number two. He walketh uprightly, and notice this, and worketh righteousness. He worketh righteousness. In other words, his life is filled with right. He has a desire. He walks right. He works right. His whole life is about doing what is right. He does it by the light of day. He does it by the darkness of night. He does right when every eye can see him, and he does right when no eye can see him. He worketh righteous. So his walk, his work. But I really want you to notice this. You want to get into God's presence? Notice his words. Before I even get into this, look right here. Ouch. Look what he said in verse number three. He, well, verse two, he walketh, that's his walk. He worketh, that's his work. But now notice his words. He speaketh the truth in his heart. He backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Verse 4 continues this thought about words that that last phrase, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. In other words, the person that's going to get into the presence of God, he walks right, he works right, but boy, his words are right. His words are right as well. You know, there's much to say in the Bible about the words that you and I use. Many a good people have been destroyed by the words of others. Whether you and I realize it or not, our words are very powerful. Our words can either be used to build people up or our words can be used to tear down and destroy. Can I show you a good verse? Look up on the screen, Proverbs 18, 21. Read it with me. Ready? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, if I understand that verse correctly, with our words, with our tongue, we give life. And with our word and with our, our tongue and with our words, we can give death. I've been reading recently, Bill O'Reilly has a book out called Killing the Rising Sun. It's about the fall of, the, of the, uh, the Japanese Empire in the days of World War II. Fascinating book. I've just read Killing Patton. Patton was an, uh, 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 a general in, in World War II. The Killing of Patton, Killing the Rising Sun. It's all based around the World War II thing. And... Uh, in that, in that book about Patton, of course, Patton was over dealing with the, 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 uh, uh, the, the Third Reich, Nazi Germany. And really what fueled the fire of all that was a book that Adolf Hitler wrote called Mein Kampf. And broken down in the English language, that means my struggles. 
Meinkauf. In that book, Meinkauf, listen to this, there were 153,750 words. 153,750 words, and those words fueled the German Empire into the Second World War. For every word that was written in that book, Meinkauf, 39 Jewish people lost their life. For every word. For every word that was written in mind called 300 people lost their lives in the days of World War II. Don't tell me words aren't powerful. We better be careful what we say about one another. Before you spread that latest gossip that you've heard, you better be careful what you say. You can destroy a brother. You can destroy a sister by the words that you use. Look at that verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil, nor taketh up reproach against his neighbor. You better be sure that you always get the other side of the story as well. It's one thing to hear one side. It's another thing to get the other side and then make a decision to say, not say anything about either side. That's good advice. You ever thought about this? You don't have to apologize for what you don't say. Can I have it? Amen. You and I don't have to apologize for what you don't say. Words can kill. There was a young lady down in the state of Florida. This just happened not too awful long ago. And she was best friend. She had two other teenage girls and her. And they called them the three, three amigos, I believe. it. And they were all three best friends. But for some reason, two of these young teenage girls turned on this other young teenage girl. They turned on her. And they started getting on Facebook or whatever, and they started saying bad things about her, terrible things about this one. And then these two girls, their mothers got involved in it. And they got on Facebook, and they started saying bad things about this young lady until she finally took a rope, entered a closet, and hung herself. Let me tell you what killed that. And by the way, not the teenage girls, but both the mamas are on trial for second-degree murder over that with their words. They killed that young lady. I was reading the other week about David Livingston. David Livingston was a famous missionary, and, and his wife, uh, Mary, was faithful by his side. And he went into the bush of Africa. I mean, deep into the dark bush of Africa, carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Had his wife, his faithful wife, Mary, was by his side, but she caught the fever in the jungle, and she became very weak. Till finally she had to go home. She couldn't, she couldn't go any longer. She, she went home. He sent her home. And he continued on into the bush, uh, taking the gospel to those, those uh, cannibals in, in the jungles of Africa. Until the gossipers started. They started talking about that there was problems and troubles in the marriage of David Livingston. David Livingston wanted to stay as far away as he could from his wife Mary because he couldn't stand her. And they started spreading that gossip until finally he sent for her and brought her back to the bush. And she caught the fever again, died shortly thereafter. And it was recorded of those people, listen now, here's what they said, that they as sure as killed her as if they would have put arsenic in her tea. We better be careful the words that we use. You want to get into God's presence? Shh. You know what James talked about? That man that's able to bridle his whole body if he can bridle his what? Man, if you can keep control out of your, of your tongue, you can keep control of your whole body. Can I have an amen? 
Be careful the words. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never harm me. Excuse me. They were an idiot. Because words do hurt. And I like this. Look at verse 4, and I'm wrapping this up now. I'm coming in for a landing. Verse number 4. That last phrase that said, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. In other words, here is a man that is so honest that he gives his word and then he comes to understand that now that I've given my word, it's, it's not a good situation for me, but he won't change it. You know why? Because he gave his word. I mean, that's the kind of people that get into the presence of God. So we have his walk and his work and his words. And look at his, look at his wealth. Look at verse 5. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. What does that mean? Well, he's faithful in his financial dealings with, with other people. Uh, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't use. I remember years ago we had a man, had his kids in our Christian school, and if I'm not mistaken, they were members of our church here, but they never came. But he had a lawnmower business. And every day, he used to tick me off. When he'd come through the line to pick up his kids at school, it said down below it, had the name of his business, and it said this, Christian owned and Christian operated. That guy was using the name of Christ to, 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 to further his business. I'm Christian owned and Christian operated. I think a Christian ought to come to church. Can I have an amen? And he used his financial dealings. He, he used them in a manipulative way. Use the name of Christ. Last of all, look at this. We're done. Seeking God's presence, obeying God's precepts. Then watch this. Trusting God's promises. Look at the last phrase of verse 5, and it says this. You want to know who gets into God's presence? A man who does all this. And then it says this. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. That kind of indicates to me that there is a certain stability and a certain security, and I might even add a certain satisfaction in the life of the one who tries to please and honor God. Can I, one more time, can I slip my New Testament glasses on and read this verse right here? He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. That sounds like to me that last sentence of verse 5, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. I'm telling you, the man who tries to live his life according to the psalm not only finds himself in the presence of God here, but he'll find himself in the presence of God hereafter if we'll live our lives in Psalms 15. That isn't how to get to heaven. You go to heaven by trusting Jesus. But if you're on your way to heaven, boy, we ought to try to live like that psalm lays it out for us so we can get into God's presence. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight.